Sound Design Live. Have you got a large one? I've had no complaints so far. <laughs> oh no, don't be like that. Here I come. Infamy! Infamy! They've all got it in for me! Brian Linz, you're an actor and a sound designer, and I want to know which came first and what makes you think you can do both. <laughs> well, um, um, if we go way back into uh, uh, myself uh, being a avid listener of music when I was 13 years old, probably sound design uh, started uh, forming in my head back then because I used to listen to um, music. Uh, I, I like to listen to music that was uh, not of the norm, the top 40 stuff. I always would find interesting sounds that I really like to listen to, and people like you know, Frank Zappa really inspired me. Just to uh, just that they were doing amazing things. And so I was always a, a music collector and I always had um, uh, music around me and I got into the habit of buying records so much to the fact that we had to buy a house that would uh, house my record collection ah. because I have like over 10,000 records and uh, wow. it, got, it got a bit crazy. So, I mean, like if I wasn't necessarily designing, but I have a huge kind of, you know, treasure trove to go to to find interesting stuff. But uh, basically in theater, um, I... Uh, I became an actor first, but I would always have people over, and I think this fits into sound design as well. When I when I was younger and starting to be an actor, I would always have people over and say, "You got to hear this piece of music; it's amazing." Either because the musician is so unbelievable, or the musician is so bad, you've got to listen to it to laugh at it. <laughs> so I would have people over all the time, and then that turned into me doing radio work which um, I did on community radio stations at universities. And it even started uh, giving me a DJ. Uh, as a DJ, yeah, a host for a radio show called Uncle Bry's Funhouse uh, on uh, CFUV Radio in Victoria. And I did that for about 12 years. And I started to, you know, add in little bits of kind of um, samples. And, uh, you know, I would do themes on a trees or something. And I'd throw in Pioneer Chainsaw commercials from the 50s and nice. that kind of stuff. So I started editing. And so I started to learn the editing process. Um, and, uh, and then I was also paid. I started getting some sort of on the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation radio, like NPR in the States. We have the CBC here. And they started paying me to do these like all night shows, which was really cool. cool. So that kind of got me into... Um, Playing around with some of the software, and uh, but really, uh, I I was an actor first. Like 1981, I graduated from theater school and worked professionally for probably about 25 years. And then someone asked me to do a sound design because they knew of all my uh, music um, kind of qualifications, I guess, and knew that I came from another kind of side a little bit, and I might be able to uh, come up with something unusual. And uh, that sort of uh, is, is is what I've been doing now. So it's cool. Well, I think it makes a lot of sense because. Um, whenever I work on a show, I realize that I need to understand it at a certain level to make appropriate choices. But then when I'm watching rehearsals and when I'm watching performances, I also feel like the actor has another understanding. They need to understand their part incredibly well to make all of the thousands of choices they make about their blocking and all of the choices that go into creating a believable character and, and telling a story. And so right. you're bringing a really deep level of understanding of the piece then to your sound design. Well, in a, in a way I do. I mean, I've understood 
understood plays since I was young, going to see them and then actually being in them, that I understand rhythms of writing, uh, um, directors kind of concepts and uh, that kind of stuff. So already there's a, there's a, a kind of a, an understanding between me and the director or even me and the play or the actors. Um, I know when it's gone wrong, I've been in plays where you're you know backstage going, whoa, you know. And I, I was never the kind of person before I was a sound designer to go, geez, I could have done that better. I never thought that for an instant. But I just went, that's it's just not right. It's not helping the actor. It's not helping the play. It's overdone. There's too much of it. Or maybe that could use something. You know, occasionally I would think that, like, you know, geez, you know, a piece of music might be good there. But um, in shows, um, you know, it's always an interesting thing when you're talking about underscoring, for example. And, and, and one of the exciting things for me as an actor and a sound designer is to watch, well, the, the, the actors that understand music so that you uh, decide with a director this piece of music might work really well as an underscore and you throw it underneath, uh, you know, in a rehearsal and you watch the actor take to it and his monologue becomes music with the music. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that's pretty cool. And then there's other actors that just do what they have to do. So it's kind of interesting that, um, I mean, I've worked with really good directors that understand the music and we're not going to put in something that is going to disturb an actor's performance or a uh, or the play. I mean, we try not to do that all the time, right? But, um, you know, sometimes, I sometimes feel like the director wants too much and I'd like to pull back and I say, you know, I don't think we need that. The director has fallen in love with it and sometimes keeps it. But I've never had an actor sort of say, to be, you know, can you get rid of that? You know, are we, are, are, is that going to be under there? You know, so it's, well, it's worked out I most. have had actors say that to me. So have I'm you? wondering if maybe you are an actor's sound designer, like you look at it from an actor's perspective and do what you think is really appropriate for the actor or for the maybe. action. Maybe, maybe I have that in there because I wouldn't want, um, I wouldn't want to, uh, to, to to have something supporting me that's not supporting me, you know, that some the designer thinks is going to be right. So I recently saw No Exit at ACT, um, for which you did the sound design. Uh, first of all, how did you get the gig? Oh, really interesting. Um, I had worked with uh, Kim Collier, who directed the show. Um, we had done a play. There's a theater company on Vancouver Island called Shemanis uh, Theater Company, and they did a production of Doll's House. And Kim Collier comes from a very um, kind of visual... Um, well, I mean, if you saw No Exit, you kind of get the idea. Lots of video and sound and theater, and right. they, they create their own pieces. Anyway, she, she, she's also a very good director, and she was doing this production of Doll's House, and she asked me to do it. I don't know why, maybe because of some of the other sound stuff I had done in Vancouver. Um, so we did that, and it was a really exciting project. I mean, she's really great. She, she's a director who totally understands music, and she had even gone through the script and said, this is where we need sound. This is like She did a lot of the job you know, that, that a sound designer has to do is finding the places where you want to put sound. Right. But she basically had an idea in her, in her head. She gets an idea of almost everything and then works with it all collaboratively during the rehearsal, which is fantastic. Like you're not forced to do anything. She just opens up um, avenues that you never expected were even going to be there. So 
we worked on that show together and uh, it was really exciting. I mean, one of the things that uh, excites me about theater uh, sound design as well is, is the, um, is the research and finding stuff. And I thought, you know, like I've done a lot of like sixties you know, or, you know, more modern sound designs using music, but this was Doll's House Ibsen and it was the traditional telling of the story. And so I started researching uh, Norwegian music from around the time of Henrik Ibsen. And it was so exciting because doors were open and I would find these pieces of music that were just unbelievably perfect for the play because everyone was having the same angst. Anyways, we did that production and um, and it was great. And then all of a sudden I got a, uh, because it was a co-production with um, Virtual Stage Company uh, and the Electric Company, um, Andy Thompson, who played um, Crado in the show, called me up and offered me the show and like basically no money at all. It was going to be a 10 performance run of the show in a warehouse in Vancouver. <laughs> and uh, there was basically, um, you know, like no money. I, I, I probably, it's probably embarrassing probably to say how much it is. Anyway, um, I said, I don't know. I have to think about it. Then Kim found out how much it was and offered me double that, which was still no money at all. Uh-huh. Um, and But I wanted to work with these people, of course, and sort of, you know, some of the projects that, you know, we work on, we do it for the love and not for the money. And um, so basically they asked me to do it. And uh, I came over to Vancouver. I, you know, I, I don't live in Vancouver. I live in Victoria. So, uh, you know, I stayed with my relatives and um, basically worked on the show. And the cool thing about the show is that uh, they went, they did it originally in a warehouse and uh, there was nothing in the warehouse except for this bunker, and that's where the hotel room was, if you saw the show. Uh-huh. And they set up all the cameras inside of the uh, bunker, and then we brought in everything else, lights, sound, equipment, all kinds of stuff. But the great thing about the show was that uh, because the actors and the director were working inside of this room, I could tittle away uh, and listen to stuff while they were doing scenes and just kind of underscore it while they were working. So I was working on the fly with oh, them, which is really nice. great because you don't get an opportunity to do that a lot. Yeah. So, uh, so that's kind of how the show came about. And, and like I say, we did it for 10 shows and, uh, and then it was the little show that became bigger and bigger. And next thing you know, it's in San Francisco. Did somebody from ACT come to see it? How'd they find out about it? Um, it well, we did the show and, uh, it closed basically two years ago and uh, everybody packed everything up. Like I, I don't even know where the records went. Like when I found out it was being remounted, um, I went, Oh my God. Because one of the things about the show is that uh, uh, there was live turntable spinning in the show. Right. I wanted to ask you about that because those moments when the valet plays records on this antique turntable are really nice. So I wanted to know, I was going to ask you later on, but I'll go ahead and ask you now, how was that accomplished and how did you pick the music and technically how did you do it? Um, technically how we did it was basically I found this, uh, I do a lot of garage sailing looking for records and, you know, musical things. And I found this old, uh, kind of, uh, turntable. It's, uh, I don't, I, like, I, I don't know what, what you call it, but basically it can play down to 16, up to 78, and uh, there's a little light, and you have to match up these little dots to get the right RPMs. You know, it's really cool, and you can spin it backwards. And the people who were selling it were because they were, uh, it was a, uh, an estate sale, and their parents were uh, square dance callers, and they would go all over British Columbia. Nice. And they had this long speaker, like 50-foot cord of the speaker that you could basically put at the other end of the gymnasium and have the microphone with your... Uh, with your uh, with your turntable. Anyway, I found that and I lent it to the show and basically I brought it in. And again, while Tim was working with the actors inside the box, the ballet was creating creating his own his own world um, outside. And so we would go and I brought like about three boxes of seventy eights, 
And, uh, you know, I knew one had to be kind of a South American dance. It had that kind of flavor. So we just, I collect 78s as well as our, you know, 45s and LPs. So we just uh, had listening sessions where we'd listen to stuff. And uh, he'd take a box and start spinning and mixing stuff. And then because it had a, it was a belt turntable, I guess, that you could slow it down or speed it up. And, and he started manipulating it. And I was just like, it was so exciting, you know, to have live sound from a 78 record player. Yeah, that it's a really nice touch to it. Yeah. So that was pretty cool. And so uh, when the show uh, you know, was remounted, uh, I was looking for the records and I thought, and that, did they have them? Did I have them? And, and basically, you know, I had to search around looking because we never thought that the show would ever um, have another life. And to answer the question that you asked earlier was that uh, basically the year after we did it, or maybe it was a year and a half later, it went on a tour. It went to Kamloops, uh, British Columbia, for a, a two-week run. And then it was invited to Toronto to a festival. And then it went to Calgary, where um, I hadn't been to Kamloops or the Toronto side of the production. But they brought me into Calgary because I got to play with a, a million-dollar sound system, 160 speakers in this theater. Whoa. 120 surround. And like this, basically, this show was like out of the box it's like you know it was a stereo show and here we had like lots of things to play with so all we could really play with was like really great kind of uh, subwoofer sounds and uh, and just really filling that theater with a lot of oomph so that was pretty cool Intense mechanical sounds for the entrance of each character on stage. I was yeah. wondering if you could take us through your creation process and talk about some of the tools that you use and where you got some of those sounds. Well, I have to admit that uh, a lot of the sounds come from a um, uh, composer from Quebec named Gilles Gobille. Um, he basically manipulates, he takes a lot of sound effects and um, creates these kind of wonderful soundscapes and really emotionally charged. Um, and uh, I had had this uh, music and wanted to use it somewhere and it fit very, very well. Mostly because you hear a lot of um, crashing of trains and uh, banging. And in the warehouse where we were working, um, there was the first entrance of um, um, was it Inez? I think it was Inez, yeah. Um, came through a, a metal door that was like on, on a chain, so it was pulled up. And in the piece of music was the same sound. I mean, like it was just unbelievable that it matched. And not only that, because uh, outside of the warehouse was a, uh, a train delinking place. So the trains were constantly banging outside. And so I started taking lots of train sounds and adding them to the Gilles music. and, wow. uh, and created some. Yeah, it was just one of those things. You just sort of, you know, it's like you're working on something. You're, you're a playwright and you're working on something and a plane flies over and you go, oh, maybe a plane should fly over at this moment. I mean, I, it was like, oh, at this moment, a train should, you know, smash. So it worked really, really well. The sound reinforcement of the people when they were in the room was strange. And I wonder if yeah. you could tell me about how that was done, because I didn't go in the room to see how the microphones were set up, if there were yeah. just some area mics. And is there someone constantly mixing those? Or, I don't know, were you having some difficulties there? It just, it seemed a little odd, and I didn't, I wanted to ask you if you felt like that was the sound that you were going for, if there were some 
helpful things in that process that you could share? Well, um, one of the things about the sound, I mean, in, in when we did it in the uh, warehouse and, and in the Calgary Productions, we didn't seem to have the same issues that we were having at ACT. And I don't, because a lot of the sound, you know, you, it was very hard to get the same uh, quality uh, across the board. And then, of course, to match it with the video um, portion of the show so that because people didn't you know you needed to question more about that video was that live or video or not even know that that was video that that was actually happened and all of a sudden the camera starts moving around uh-huh. but um we had a lot of difficulties and kept kept working on it working on it it, it, it was difficult i mean i don't think anybody was uh, uh totally happy with the sound i mean what we were trying to achieve is basically have it a theatrical presentation inside of that room but also mic it and you you can't do it naturalistic we weren't we couldn't go for a film quality and body mic them all um they is that because the director didn't want to see mics she not that she didn't want to see mics but she didn't want it to uh to uh she wanted it still to be a kind of a theatrical presentation that it was being their voices were being enhanced by the mics. Okay, got it. And uh, so that's what we were going for. Yeah. I wanted to ask about your sound installation that I read about called Isotank. Could you talk about that for a second? Yeah, no, I'd love to. Um, there's a theater company in Victoria called the Belfry Theater, and uh, I do a lot of work there as an actor, and they hire me a lot as a sound designer, and it's great in between the jobs, you know, the acting jobs. And uh, they have a festival called the Spark Festival, and before each, and, and they bring in um, kind of innovative uh, theater productions. Um, not that they're a traditional theater company, but uh, this festival allows them to do something just a little bit different. So two shows that are touring around Canada, they bring in, and... Uh, Prior to each show, they have uh, lobby shows, little 10-minute lobby shows. So they ask some of the smaller companies to put on 10-minute shows all over the Belfry Theatre. So you could be doing it. It actually has a Belfry, so there's a stairwell to the Belfry, and some people do shows in there for seven people. Um, You can go underneath where they keep some of the gardening stuff, and someone's done a show in there for like eight people. And um, I found a a place in the back room. I wanted to do it in the bathroom originally, but they wouldn't let me. Um, so, uh, <laughs> there's a small hallway that would hold 20 people. And I set up, uh, two speakers on either side. And then I hit a speaker down another hallway. Um, and, uh, basically for 10 minutes, I took people into an isolation chamber. Basically, you know, uh, and it was all done with sound effects and some found sounds that I had, and um, and and some, you know, vocal samples, that kind of stuff. And uh, basically, took them through, like you know, you enter it and the sounds of it, and then you start feeling good and relaxed, and then you start getting scared, and then you start feeling better, and then they bring you back. and And people said that it was like, you know, who have been in isolation chambers felt that they had actually had that experience of everything that they had felt. And it was kind of cool and having this third speaker hidden was really great because it would have like at one point there was like the waters rushing back and forth and then this strange cello would start playing way off in the distance and because the speaker was off in the distance it had this really cool effect 
And I would also use it in an underwater area where a guy was kind of help, help, help. And he was screaming, but he was way off because the speakers were really close. Like everybody was basically just, you know, surrounded like big headphones on, on top of 20 people. Uh-huh. So uh, having this extra speaker was really cool and had a lot of surprises with it. And so, yeah, it was kind of, it was cool. And, and people really liked it and was nominated for a Critics' Choice for Best Sound in Victoria last year. So. Congratulations. That sounds very yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah. I've been nominated for a couple of awards in Vancouver, some of the big awards, which kind of blew my mind. Because, again, I feel just like the little guy in the sound world. And uh. People are acknowledging it. And you know, well, that's kind of cool. I'm so sorry. Did I interrupt something? Me balls burning! Sends it close to the fire. Big dick. Sound design. Live.